I know these are tough things to talk about, and we all want the best for our patients, for our communities, for ourselves. and I don't really see them as mutually exclusive. I think they all have very valid points, and we have to find the balance as our patients, doctors, and as people, as our, our, ourselves, and how we take care of ourselves. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 195. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers, to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Before I go any further, I do want to give a disclaimer, a trigger warning. This episode, we will be talking about body size, BMI, and weight loss. And I am talking to a medical practitioner who specializes in obesity medicine. We're going to be talking about that term and many other things. It is a very interesting episode, but if you're in a vulnerable position where hearing these topics is going to trigger you and it's going to be difficult for you, do not listen to this episode. I also want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about you or your children's or family's health, nutrition, growth, consult a doctor. So today I am speaking with Dr. Richa Mithel, and she is the founder and medical director of Radiant Health Weight Loss and Wellness in Frisco, Texas. Did y'all know that I grew up in Texas. I love Texas, y'all, for real. But now I live in Washington State. It's my new home, the Pacific Northwest. Beautiful. Anyway, back to Dr. Mithel. As an internist and diplomat of the boards of obesity medicine and lifestyle medicine, she provides weight management and preventive health services. She has an integrative approach that treats the whole person, combining specialized medical care with customized nutritional guidance, mindset, and lifestyle coaching. She is passionate about preventing chronic disease through by focusing on lifestyle medicine wellness strategies to create weight wellness and reverse and prevent chronic metabolic diseases. She is a speaker on topics related to metabolic health and obesity and posts regularly to the Radiant Health blog about strategies for preventive health, weight management, plant-forward eating, and enjoy sharing her healthy creations. Dr. Mithel is a member of the Dallas Obesity Society. She resides in the suburbs of Dallas with her husband and two children. She enjoys yoga, cooking, reading, and traveling. I invited Dr. Mithel on because I wanted to to have a discussion about weight loss medicine, about obesity medicine, about the term obesity, about the body mass index and its utility, about 
being metabolically healthy at different body sizes. And I felt like she was a good person to talk to. I've had her on Instagram live before. She is very smart, very well-spoken, but I knew that she would go there with me and have some of these difficult conversations. And I feel like it went really, really well. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode and you get something out of it. But again, if you're in a position that this may trigger you, if you are still healing from your journey with body image and your relationship to food, this may not be the episode for you. But without further ado, here is Dr. Richa Mithel. Dr. Richa Mithel, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we've had a discussion before on Instagram Live, so I am happy to broaden this discussion and really get into it based upon all the work you do and your areas of passion. And I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. But before we get down into the nitty gritty, I want to know about your diet journey. How do you describe your way of eating and how did you get there? That's a great question and something that I've contemplated a lot in my own journey because of the work that I do. And I'm sure you have a lot of uh, thought process around what you eat and why you eat. And for me, it was, I grew up in a South Asian household. My parents are both from India. And so my journey was very much eating the food of um, Indian origin. And really, um, interestingly, meat uh, really came into the picture more as a way for my family to have us assimilate into being in the United States. So my mom has never eaten meat, never tasted it, uh, doesn't eat eggs, but we kind of started eating it as children along the way uh, to kind of be a part of things. And at home, mostly ate a vegetarian kind of Indian uh, diet. And then as my journey evolved, growing into an adult and starting to think about things, uh, I, 10 years ago, uh, became kind of vegetarian initially and have been on the path of becoming mostly plant-based. I uh, sometimes have, uh, for myself, struggled with uh, dairy and egg, especially when traveling. And I've decided to be really uh, flexible with myself, and so I sometimes include them during those times. Uh, and then for the most part, we're plant-based and we cook a lot at home as a family. Nice. How much of your journey has been influenced by spiritual practices? Because I know that for a big part of the culture in India, the vegetarianism comes from that spiritual practice. Yeah, so for me personally, it wasn't really the spiritual practice as being um, a Hindu. Um, in my home, it was always very much about kind of being a part of nature. And, uh, you know, for me, when I started kind of educating myself about the meat industry and just factory farming, and it became kind of an ethical thing first before it was a health uh, concern. Yeah, super interesting. When you look back at the choices your parents made for you, because it's interesting, isn't it? Like you come into this culture and like, okay, we want to make sure y'all feel like you fit in and you don't feel different. So we're going to have you eat meat or, you know, make this part of your way of eating. How, what are your feelings about that, about the, the, the choices that your parents made for you? Yeah, I've actually talked to my mom about it because I asked her, I said, you know, you never wanted to eat it. Why did you 
why did you do that? And she said, well, your, your dad really felt like it would really benefit you because we wanted you to fit into uh, society and when you were going to school or birthday parties and things like that. So I guess I do appreciate that they were coming from a place of love. And we always had a foundation of eating at home. And I'm very thankful for the fact that uh, you know, I have my mom to kind of model around that because she always cooked, you know, food every day. And yes, food was her love language. It still is. But it was it was always very important that we be eating, you know, well-rounded uh, diet and eating at, at, at home and eating as a family every night. I mean, I can just in my mind, smell all the aromas of your home because I love Indian food so much. <laughs> and I was lucky that my best friend, my roommate from college, she's from Kerala, and uh, I was exposed to it early and the extremely spicy side of it very early. <laughs> so <laughs> it's so nice to have to have grown up with somebody that likes to cook and was able to expose you to all of that from a young age. All right, well, let's shift gears into what you do for a living. So you're board certified in internal medicine, lifestyle medicine, but also there is a field that's actually called obesity medicine. What interested you in these specialties? So as far as internal medicine, you know, when I thought about becoming a doctor, I always thought about that kind of ongoing relationship that I'm going to create with my patients and serve as a resource to them in their health journey. Of course, in reality, perhaps in the practice, it was a little bit different earlier on when I first started my career. I used to work in the hospital and I was taking care of really sick people. Um, and I, I, I always knew that my focus was more on the prevention side and the counseling and the, you know, just really preventing those things that were I was seeing in the hospital. And so I uh, initially uh, found out about the field of obesity medicine through a, a fellow physician who uh, had uh, mentioned it to me. And I said, well, that's really interesting. And I learned more about it. And what, what, what drew me to it is that I actually had an experience where I was a medical director for a clinic that was helping people with weight management. And I found it very fulfilling to be able to work with people on their lifestyle. And I was taking them off of medications. You know, they were people with diabetes and high blood pressure. And uh, I, th I think I finally realized, okay, this is kind of like somehow the path that I'm supposed to be on. So I, I ended up... For personal reasons, I was moving around a lot. Uh, so in my heart, I was like starting to go down that path. And I did the uh, American Board of Obesity Medicine is the certification that I did. And really the idea was that, you know, when you look at weight management and all the different things that are out there that, that people do, uh, most of them are not evidence-based. And uh, they tend to be I think programs that oftentimes are a little bit predatory or, you know, trying to sell someone something and uh, people get taken advantage of. And I don't think that's right. As a physician, I think we should be doing better. So that was my first impetus to go into this field, obesity medicine. When I did the lifestyle medicine aspect, I had already started my own practice because I realized that this is what I'm meant to do in medicine. I'm meant to work with people and help them with that prevention side. And I uh, did the certification after I realized that I was practicing lifestyle medicine. I just didn't have a name for it. And so that has been really amazing to be able to incorporate. And I'm also interested in culinary medicine. I'm doing a coaching certification for that. 
And um, I love being able to really um, help with that translation of all the different things we tell our patients as doctors to what's on your plate and why is it there? And let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so beautiful. And I can completely relate. And I think a lot of physicians can, when you go into that traditional medical setting, it doesn't necessarily align with the vision you had for yourself when you dreamed of becoming a doctor, right? <laughs> so it's like, I want to help people. And then you go in and every day feels just very discouraging and you feel like you're just treading water and you're just barely making it and trying to keep up, but you don't get that gratification of really helping insight change for people. So I hear you whenever you discovered this path and you're like, wow, that feels really good. And I feel like I'm making a difference in people's lives. And then you went towards that path. Well, I want to ask a few questions that might be a little bit more difficult and controversial, especially since you're already in this field. But I have to ask, given what I talk about on this podcast and also because there's separate worlds, right? There's there's some worlds that say that maybe we shouldn't have terms and use the terms that we do. And there are some that say, yes, those are accurate terms. So let's talk about the term obesity specifically. So the term obesity, it's come under fire in the anti-diet, intuitive eating and health at every size community. What are your thoughts on the term obesity and how it's defined and designated as a chronic disease? So first of all, I want to say that I'm glad we're having this discussion because I know these are tough things to talk about and we all want the best for our patients, for our communities, for ourselves. And I don't really see them as mutually exclusive. I think they all have very valid points and we have to find the balance as our patients, doctors, and as people, as our, our, ourselves and how we take care of ourselves. So when we talk about the word obesity, you know, generally speaking, I don't think that term is enough. It doesn't say enough. It's a, I think it was just kind of a word that, um, for the lack of having a different word for it. And really adiposity-based chronic disease, which is ABCD, it was termed by the American College of Endocrinology in 2017 is really a better definition because everybody's different. And I think the term obesity really just comes from, oh, okay, excess body weight that could be affecting the health. Well, that's very vague and isn't pertinent to everybody. So it has to really be more of a, for you as a person, is your weight and your health habits, are they creating some type of issue for your health? And if so, then we can call that ABCD or adiposity-based chronic disease. So it has to be much more nuanced. And I think painting everything with a brush just based on um, BMI or body weight doesn't really tell the whole story and it doesn't do it justice. Yeah. And I imagine that that more specific term might also include people who, when you look at them, may not appear to have a larger body, right? Absolutely. Because it's not really about total body weight for anyone. It's about how your specific characteristics of the type of body fat that we might have excess of, where we're storing it, and how it's personally affecting your metabolic health, which we can get into what those parameters are. And then for particular conditions, we know that they're 
is some data around when we carry, say, a larger body size, we might be at risk for things like obstructive sleeve apnea, maybe increased pressure on the joints, so osteoarthritis, um, certain uh, particular cancers like endometrial cancer, liver cancer, postmenopausal breast cancer. There is some potential weight component there that can play a role for people, but it's not the... Um, kind of end-all, be-all measure of health, just weight or BMI. And like you said, there, there are, I'll share with you, me personally, when I, uh, I could be a normal BMI, but when I start to have excess weight in my midsection, my hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of my blood sugar control, starts to go up. Mm -hmm. So for me, my adiposity-based chronic disease could start very early. And externally, you wouldn't be able to tell that just by looking at me. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an important point, which brings me to the next question and a whole nother topic that we could probably have an entire podcast episode on, which is the BMI, <laughs> because I feel like this is everywhere and there's so many arguments for it, against it, whether it's actually helpful or not. So let's talk about first, what is the BMI and what is its utility in medicine? How are we using it currently? So body mass index is BMI, and it's basically your weight versus your height, meters squared. So essentially, it's not taking into account anything except for weight and height, and currently is used in medicine to, de to delineate specific cutoffs related to weight. So uh, BMI of 25 to 29.9 is considered overweight. Above 30 is obesity. Below 25 is quote-unquote normal. Um, and it's used as a screening tool. So I know in a lot of physician offices, they, the electronic medical record gives a prompt, and they got to say that they looked at it or addressed it. And, you know, I think that probably along the way it started off well-intentioned <laughs> to try to start capturing this condition and maybe being able to have a discussion, but it's not a very great tool. Um, number one, because it doesn't take into account that personal risk assessment that I just mentioned. Number two, it doesn't take into account body composition. You could have someone who has a lot of muscle mass and they're showing up as obesity and you're like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Or, like I said, there's people who are in a normal BMI category that you're not even going to catch who are actually having adiposity-based chronic disease conditions. And then, of course, you have the group of people that may have a BMI over 30, and maybe it isn't just all muscle mass, but maybe aren't having any health conditions currently related to that. So it's not a very great tool. Yeah. You brought up your Indian. I have seen, especially with the lifestyle medicine, that there might be different BMI cutoffs used for different ethnic groups. I'm wondering how many different designations there are, and maybe from your field in obesity medicine, are there discussions of different cutoffs for different ethnic groups? I don't know that there's enough discussions around it because I think that most of the um, indicators on you know visits to the doctor, they don't break it down by ethnic group, but there are differences. And mainly based on uh, 
abdominal weight circumference, Mm -hmm. actually. But when we talk about BMI, um, and we can also look at body fat percentage, there are different cutoffs for different ethnicities. And for, say, for instance, South Asian and Asian ethnicities, the risk starts, actually, obesity is considered the BMI over 27, I believe, is the number. Um, And BMI over 23 is overweight. Again, probably not capturing the whole story there, but um, I think those are uh, those are discussions well worth having because uh, the current system is not really, uh, I think, enough. In the United States right now, do you have the current stats of what percentage of our population falls in what, which one of these arbitrary categories right now? Yeah, so the data on the CDC website is basically from, I believe it was from 2017, up till 2017, and it was 42% of the population has a BMI over 30, would be considered to have obesity. I think when we talk about overweight, it's 65%, closer to that. Yeah. So the majority of us are already technically, quote, abnormal, right? According to a BMI (laughs) designation, which I I don't, do you remember what year it was that the number suddenly jumped lower and every, there was a huge percentage of people that were considered overweight? I feel like it was in the last decade, right? Where they changed the cutoff suddenly. Yeah. So it's one of those things that overnight, a lot of people may suddenly become categorized differently. Yeah. I I don't remember the exact date. I'd have to get back to you on that, but I think it was. Sometime in the in the in the two thousands. Mm-hmm. And one thing I you kind of already pointed this out, but one thing that I want listeners to know is that for certain insurance payments, the calculating and acknowledging the BMI is required to bring up reimbursements and uh, it counts for points, things like this. So discussion about whether you should weigh a patient or not weigh a patient, those kinds of things. Um, a lot of it comes into play with this. You know, if you're going to get reimbursed more from an insurance company because you are calculating and acknowledging that BMI, then it's likely something that's going to be implemented into your regular doctor's visits. Um, so it's just almost like it's just worked into the system at this point. And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family. DrYami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. Yeah, it is. And, and, and again, like I think it's appropriate at a preventive health annual exam type of visit where you're looking at all aspects of a person's health. And I look at weight just like I look at blood pressure. So it's not maybe something that we do every single visit depending on what the person's coming in for. And perhaps it needs to be more of a uh, in-depth discussion. I would love to see uh, counseling on dietary habits, exercise counseling, things like that be incentivized that actually 
matter uh, more, you know, in the in the scheme of things in terms of a preventive health plan. But that's, of course, not there yet. Absolutely. And that takes more time, right? So calculating the BMI is just like weight and height. We can do that pretty quick. Check that box. <laughs> True. What do you think, is it realistic that we could start advocating for not being weighed at every single doctor's visits? I know that there's groups that are encouraging people to ask to not be weighed or refuse to be weighed. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a it's a complicated question because when I look at say I'm looking at it say from an objective standpoint where I'm not going to judge someone based on it but I want to know what is their blood pressure? I want to know what is their weight because it can lead me to maybe actually I'm going to add on waist circumference. That's something that I care about as a metabolic, you know, health doctor. But is it relevant to every single visit? Probably not. And so I think it's well worth having the discussion around um, you know, having that thought, thoughtful process of, is it something that maybe we do periodically rather than every single visit? Um, is it, is it something that is okay to refuse? Absolutely. You always have, uh, to, should have the say in terms of what is done to you and your body when you go to see the doctor. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting discussion because I could totally see this in, both ways. And the reason is, is because one of the reasons that people don't want to be weighed is just like you said, it comes from the judgment part of it, right? And so if we're saying a certain weight is bad or you shouldn't be a certain weight, then being weighed can be a very stressful and scary and demeaning experience. But if we start to accept more size differences in people and see that there is a range in sizes in people and look at it more from, like you said, more of a well-being holistic approach, then suddenly it does just become another piece of data. Like, I don't think people are going to start crying or get depressed when they get their blood pressure taken. I mean, it might be like a number like you don't want to see, but it's way different than getting on the scale. I think the scale is just this really scary place for people to want to be. But most people aren't just like saying, don't ever take my blood pressure or please no, never take my blood sugar. You know, it, it's so interesting, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's because we have been judged. People are judged on their appearance all the time. We, we as men and women get told all the time, whether they're blatantly or subliminally, what we should look like and what does health yes. always look like. And we just said, you can't look at someone and make a judgment about their health anyways. But I will say, that part of this and part of the problem is the medical system healthcare providers don't know enough they don't they're not educated enough and they have biases that come to the table and lots of people have had negative experiences and you know say say they did take their weight and their BMI what did they do with that information? Did they just simply say, oh, well, you know, here we are again, your BMI is still 40. You know, you probably should think about losing some weight. Here's this random handout and then they're on their way. They felt judged, maybe it had nothing to do with what they went in with, or maybe conditions were assumed to be related to weight when maybe there was something else going on. Um, and did they ask for permission to talk about it? Was it in the right setting? I mean, that's kind of a very personal conversation, should be happening with your annual visit, maybe not when you go in with something else. And so these are all things that healthcare providers have to be educated about. And I will say that I've had discussions with other healthcare providers and Facebook groups and such where I say, wow. I'm like, wow, because we didn't get any of this stuff in medical school and residency. It was stuff I learned later because I wanted to. Yes. Oh, that's... 
such a great point and such a good discussion that medical bias, weight stigma is real in the medical field. And I think too, it's because as doctors, we do have this expert role. It's like, you know, I know what you should do and you should just do it. And if you haven't changed, it's because you haven't done it or, you know, like you're not taking responsibility. And so I think there's that level of frustration there on the doctor's part, but it's so much more complex than that, isn't it? It is. And I know, you know, when we talk about, I've been educating myself a lot about the health at every size and kind of what that is all about. And from what I understand so far, I'm not an expert in it, but from what I understand, it's really about, again, respect, respecting diversity in body size, gender, um, you know, gender differences, and then really understanding that there are social determinants that um, oftentimes set us up for whatever, uh, you know, it, we're, whatever environment we're living our lives in. But I, I, th- I don't think that that and personal uh, responsibility are necessarily mutually exclusive. I think we have to be addressing all sides of it. And um, I, I do understand where that's coming from. And, you know, as a physician who takes care of people who come in because sometimes what the impetus of them calling was, I think I need to lose some weight. I need your help. And I have to peel the onion layers back and go, okay, how are we going to do this in a way that number one, I am very cognizant of the fact that people have been on a journey before they've seen me and understanding that we have to, first of all, I do respect and I want everyone to respect all different people because everyone deserves respect, period, regardless. Number two, body image. Number three, looking at whether there has been an unhealthy relationship with food, whether it's related to trauma in the past, binge eating, anxiety or depression underlying, or because of disordered eating related to these constant kind of restrictive food diets and things like that. Uh, You know, I, I say this all the time. I'm not in the business of creating eating disorders and disordered eating, that is not what I want for my patients. And it's very important as healthcare providers, and especially as a physician that does what I do, to be very cognizant of that, screen for it, and respect that, you know, that is something that people deal with. And we can come from a more positive place of what we can add to our lives. And really that lifestyle medicine side, in addition to Uh, you know, helping people with realistic goal setting, because I think a lot of times, you know, we do have unrealistic expectations of ourselves based on media or narratives that we've heard or that BMI (laughs) saying, but I need to be a normal BMI. I'm like, actually, you don't like, let's look at your body composition. Let's look at your labs. You know, do you have issues with high cholesterol? Are you at risk for prediabetes or diabetes? Are you having problems with fatty liver? Are you having high blood pressure? And let's talk about your weight in terms of how it relates to your health. And if there aren't issues with that, then maybe we don't need to be as aggressive as you think you need to be. Yeah. Uh, you have so much there. compassion. Yeah. yeah. And I love how, because working in this field, there's so much vulnerability and they're and like, you're right. People are coming in with decades and decades of different attempts, trauma, shaming. 
it's so heavy. The burden is so heavy. So trying to help people reach what they desire, which I think is an important part. So I don't think we should go around telling people they should lose weight or look different. But I think it's completely acceptable if someone has that desire to reach a state of well-being and health that they want, and part of it might include a change in their body size, then you're one of those people that can help with compassion and with empathy. Let's step back a little bit and talk, flesh this out a little bit more about the BMI and body size. Talk a little bit more about how it's possible for people that even though they may have a larger body or a higher BMI, that they can still be metabolically healthy. You pointed out a few of those things, but maybe specifically talk about what are the things that you look at? What are the things that people should think about when they're trying to assess if they're in a range that aligns with their goals for life? Yeah. In the field of uh, weight management and obesity research, there's there's growing kind of exploration of the fact that all excess body weight is not the same. And so looking at people in terms of, okay, so that's why I use that term ABCD, right? So of course, you're going to have the people who are metabolically unhealthy with a normal BMI. So those are those people that wouldn't be caught, but they have issues. Then we have our metabolically healthy lean body, Then we have our metabolically healthy with obesity. We'll get to that in a moment. And then we have metabolically unhealthy with obesity. So those two ranges of people who have excess body weight, now we're looking at, well, are there any health concerns immediately present or maybe at risk for? And so when we're talking about what those metabolic conditions could be, again, this is why I say we have to be screening for those regardless of body size. But for people who have excess body weight, they might be at risk for things like looking at their blood pressure, for high blood pressure, cholesterol issues. Specifically in cholesterol, it could be high triglycerides, low HDL, which is a good cholesterol, elevated bad cholesterol, which can set us up for things like diabetes, heart disease. Um, and then um, increased waist circumference, fatty liver. So those kind of conditions are what we're trying to avoid down the line in terms of heart disease risk and Alzheimer's disease and things like that, kidney problems. So when we look at the group of people who appear to be what are called metabolically healthy with obesity, so that's going to be somebody who they say, okay, well, your BMI is over 30. Okay, well, let's run your labs. Labs look okay. So that would be considered someone um, to have metabolically healthy with obesity. The prevalence of that is a little unclear because a lot of the studies that have been done looking at that, they used different criteria to define metabolically healthy, but it's somewhere in the range of 10 to 30% of people who get diagnosed with obesity, I hate to use that word, but BMI over 30, because that's what they're using in this scenario that don't have a health issue. So then we have to take a step back and say, well, is this person okay to stay where they are? um, Or is there something that we should be doing in terms of treatment? So we know that they probably are at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease compared to the person who was metabolically healthy, who was lean, but less than the risk of someone who has metabolically unhealthy obesity. So that's important to keep in mind. 
when they look at the breakdown of that, those people, they're typically young women who um, have been found to be in that scenario. Now, there are some studies, I think there was like 12 of them that followed people from a range of three to 10 years. It was, it was a meta-analysis done to look at a collection of studies. And within 10 years, about half of the people developed one metabolic health concern. So, you know, I think this is why it's important to not only focus on weight and really look at the person in front of us and say, hey, you know what? Um, your labs right now look okay. So we can have a discussion around what your goals are for um, weight management, if that's something that you're interested in. But more importantly, let's talk about your health habits. Because they found that the people who were metabolically healthy with obesity often had better cardiorespiratory fitness status than the people who were metabolically unhealthy with obesity. I hope I didn't confuse that too much. But bottom line is, if you have good health habits and you're you know, working out and you're practicing healthy living, then maybe even at a larger body size, you can be healthy. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was going to point out is I know that some of the studies that we learned for the lifestyle medicine board certification showed that even people with larger body size, if they're exercising a certain amount of minutes per week, some of those risks can be flattened. So you're right. A lot of it is about what else is going on in your life. What other habits are you engaging in? When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything from t-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets. And of course, their legendary best hoodie ever. So you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days, like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the French Terry collection or the rich and polished premium slub crew tee. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use Staple 20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And also, could it be that some of these people that are larger body, that they have accumulated more body fat, they may also be engaging in other habits that increase the risk of accumulating more body fat, which it's not necessarily the body fat sometimes, but the habits themselves that could be changed faster than the weight can be changed. Do you ever do any evaluation or assessment on well-being, like how people are just feeling in their bodies and life? What kind of assessments do you do for that? Absolutely. Because in the end, it's about everyone living their best life, right? Yes. So talking about stress and how what levels of stress they're perceiving, I do assessments of that. Uh, looking at um, relationship with their social connections and how they're feeling about that. You know, with this pandemic, unfortunately, there's been a you know, there always was a lot because of this kind of modern go, go, go lifestyle. Like everyone's pretty stressed out. But I think over this pandemic, there's a lot been a lot more anxiety and mood, like a dis- disruption, like depression and things that I'm seeing in my practice. So, you know, really looking at, uh, at those aspects of a person's health, obviously, are they getting the movement that they want? Are they, uh, you know, being able to do the functional things that they want to do, like uh, get down on the floor and play with their grandkids or their or their children, uh, being able to engage in physical activities that they've been used to or or, or have wanted to, um, optimizing sleep. You know, a lot of people when they come to me actually they have symptoms of burnout. And I see this a lot, of course, with men too, but a lot of women, and well, I'm a mom and, you know, so I kind of relate to this on a personal level. We're doing everything for everyone and all the balls are in the air. And uh, we're so worried about one falling and something falling through the cracks. And that uh, oftentimes manifests itself with the complaint of, I'm tired, like fatigue. And so Uh, You know, a lot of times when people are coming in with that, I say, well, let's take a step back because what made you come in was you're like, I'm tired all the time. I've gained weight. But actually looking back, it's like, okay, you're super stressed out. You're not getting enough sleep. And, you know, I talk (laughs) a lot about what is your purpose? What brings you joy? And a lot of times people have given up maybe what brings them joy and they're just like running on the little hamster wheel and taking a step back and incrementally adding even 10 minutes a day for yourself to do something that brings you joy is important. And then food, you know, when you've been kind of like on this restrictive path um, where all the joy out of eating has been sucked out of it, and then being able to kind of use a more intuitive eating approach, that's mine when I work with people, is, hey, let's focus on what we're putting on our plate and why. And are we adding a variety of fruits and vegetables? And we, I use an app now that uh, people take photos of their food, and I kind of got away from the calories and maybe more about, did I eat because I was hungry, because I was bored, because I was stressed? How did my food make me feel? Letting go of guilt around not being perfect. This is the type of stuff that I ask and work on with people because I think it's so important. 
Uh, I love that so much. So many great thoughts. And it's true because a lot of people, I think many of us have learned how to use food to cope. I mean, it's my favorite coping tool. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. what I did since I was a little kid. So I became yeah. an expert at using food. And then we go through this global pandemic where people are feeling out of control and they're feeling very anxious. Anxiety definitely in my practice is through the roof too. And I work just with children. So it's even started in the little ones very aggressively. Yeah. But, um, and then the knowing that the research shows that in the United States, Compared to other countries, we have one of the highest levels of food restraint, yet we derive the least amount of pleasure from eating. <laughs> so it's like, That's we're like bad. trying to control everything we eat, but yet we're not actually feeling that pleasure and that satisfaction, which then reinforces that kind of restrict binge cycle. So we never have this comfortable, easy confident relationship with food. So that brings me to my next question, which is what are the different methods you use? Obviously tons of lifestyle medicine, which I love because it is my favorite field of medicine, but what other things do you use in your field to assist people in their goal of decreasing their fat mass or their body size? Yeah. So number one is a, a more thorough assessment than just a BMI. <laughs> so um, I do a uh, body composition analysis to better understand how much muscle and body body fat we have, uh, checking waist circumference. Again, like I mentioned, doing all the labs to understand what your personal risk is and what things look like internally. Um, I don't necessarily order these, but the gold standard for um, assessing uh, body fat mass is actually a DEXA scan. And that is a, a test that actually looks at there's one thing we didn't touch on today as much is where body fat lies matters. And so, um, you know, when we check waist size, when I'm doing that along with the labs, that's kind of my surrogate to know how much maybe body fat accumulation is occurring internally, which is called visceral fat around the intra-abdominal organs and the liver, which is actually very bad for our health. And that's the kind that A, B, C, D we worry about versus subcutaneous fat where um, maybe we're storing it in the lower body or in other areas of the body that that type of fat acts differently. So a DEXA scan is able to differentiate those as well. Um, other tools that I utilize is, um, you know, in addition to, of course, this kind of more intuitive eating approach of journaling to get in touch with not only what is on the plate, but the why, um, obviously, you know, uh, talking about a, I talk about a plant predominant type of diet so that it really, uh, is able to be adapted to any type of eating style, uh, because I do believe in honoring where people start from and we eat because of our culture and our, how we were raised and what we enjoy. And maybe there's certain food we like to eat to celebrate and we can eat a healthful pattern uh, of a of a of a diet, if we just call it plant predominant to begin with, no matter what kind. So that's what I uh, work with on with patients. Whether I'm doing the nutrition counseling every month, we do weekly health coaching because we know that ongoing accountability and support and helping people with setting smart goals. So 
They're very specific, they're measurable, they're time restricted, and they're, you know, kind of a finite number of things that we can focus on at a time. Those are important tools. And then for some people, we use anti-obesity medication, and I know it's called that, but basically uh, medications that help with some of the factors that come into play that can make either weight loss or weight maintenance difficult. And we know that there are certain changes that occur, especially in the ABCD type of adipose tissue, which means our body fat is actually part of our endocrine system in a way. And when we are storing excess body fat in those fat cells over time, they're oftentimes uh, releasing certain inflammatory factors in our body that increases inflammation. They're also not oftentimes releasing certain factors that regulate metabolism, which is a closely uh, linked system between our, our other endocrine organs and our fat cells and our hypothalamus. And our brain is very in tune with um, and is very an active part of what our body weight set point is. And uh, we don't really know everything about this yet, but it's a field that we're learning more and more about. But our fat cells, certain hormones like adiponectin, we found that people who might have excess body weight might have adiponectin deficiency, meaning their fat cells are not producing it. Certain hormones like leptin, which indicate fullness, may be that the brain is not responding to the levels of leptin that are around. Hormones like ghrelin that stimulate hunger. Um, there's even differences perhaps in the microbiome, which is the gut bacteria that live inside our intestines from person to person that may be affecting how much energy we extract out of the food we eat or even regulating that weight set point in the brain. So there, because there are all these complex factors that sometimes play a role for people, oftentimes the where I was going with this was that the medications oftentimes are a tool to use with the lifestyle in order to help mitigate all these other factors that we don't necessarily have control over and oftentimes people blame themselves or say, oh, I just didn't have the willpower. You know, when people lose weight, their metabolism slows down. And guess what? All, this, all these hormones, our brain regulates to try to get us back to where we were because our brain wants to defend against weight loss. And that maintenance time, oftentimes when people utilize medication along with their lifestyle change, they're going to have a more successful maintenance, unfortunately, than most people who try to do it on their own. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? 
despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Yeah. Wow. There's just so much. It's, it's so complex. It's not as simple as just calories in, calories out. I was going to ask about the microbiome because I know that there's more research on that and some super fascinating research about how the microbiome affects our body size and our fat mass. But I love how you touched upon the hormones and how they affect our intake. Can we talk just a little bit about genetic differences? Because this is something I'm super, super interested in. And I'll just say that I am a volume eater. And I would love to tell my whole story of how I became the way I am with food. But I was born, my mom had pre severe preeclampsia and I was born preterm and tiny. Like I was like this little baby. And then she didn't produce much milk. And so I feel like I probably came into like a starved feeling in life, you know? And so I've always just needed a lot of food to feel full. So I want to talk about differences in genetics that way, but also the fact that we are different, but we all live within this environment, right? So like down the road, there's easily all these fast food restaurants with hypercaloric, just really attractive food for our brains. Our brains want this. It signals survival. It makes us you know, temporarily happy because we are releasing that dopamine saying, yes, this is good. This supports your survival. And so then we have these differences in the way that our body functions, but we all live in the same playing field, which makes it even more complex, right? So can you touch upon that just a little bit? Absolutely. So yes, you know, genetics play a role and there's actually certain uh, combinations of genes uh, that actually have, have been found to be related to families that just, uh, you know, have larger body sizes. Um, you're right. We all perceive hunger differently and fullness differently. And we are in these uh, environments that unfortunately are here. And now we have to kind of navigate, right? So, um, of course, in a food scarcity environment, I'm not saying that we should not turn to those foods, but oftentimes we have other options. But those particular foods, like you mentioned, are formulated for that reason. They're, they make us get that dopamine hit and we feel good. And um, 
I think our, we, I don't want to use the word addicted, but we, we enjoy that feeling. And um, if we are uh, coping with food or if we're going down the path of convenience and maybe incorporating those ultra highly processed foods constantly, um, it's, sometimes it's hard to break that cycle because our brain keeps wanting it and those cravings can be uh, very uh, strong. And then that's where you kind of go, well, are there certain maybe people that are genetically predisposed to feel that more? Possibly. Are there people who are more susceptible because they're having anxiety or depression or maybe they have other mechanisms in their brain that, you know, uh, oftentimes we'll see people with... Um, ADHD and OCD and binge eating. I mean, there's a little bit of a compulsion, like there's other pathways involved. And so it's very complex, but we're in this environment. And I think where we can try to make a change is to say, is to recognize that and to say, hey, you know, when I, uh, when I eat these foods, this is the cycle it takes me down. Maybe I just try to cut down on how often I'm going to do that, but more importantly, what else am I going to fill up, fill up my plate with? And we talked earlier about getting joy from food. So you know, when we're getting the dopamine hit from whatever the chicken nuggets, but maybe when we're trying to eat well, we're eating something that is super boring and doesn't give us joy. Uh, maybe that's the problem. Like let's let's enjoy food again and let's nourish our bodies and think about how we can enjoy those flavors. And when we're eating a variety of foods and we're adding spices and, you know, we're uh, kind of enjoying that process again, uh, maybe that can help too. But it is, it is tough. And one of the environments that we put our bodies into is inactivity. So not only are we eating ultra-processed foods, we're stressed, we're on the go. We might give ourselves five minutes to scarf something down. How could we enjoy anything in that moment? So being present to actually enjoy the meal, no matter what the meal was, is, is a way to get more satisfaction out of what we're eating. And then that inactivity factor, of course, sitting at a computer, it's tiring. Our bodies feel tired. We're not moving, uh, which increases our risk of dying, let alone everything else. And, you know, I think like we just have to get more mindful, like in my environment, how can I optimize things? And obviously as a society, we can also optimize a whole lot of things, but I know that that's slower to change and maybe it's out of my control immediately, but there's things that we can recognize and try to make small changes in those areas. Oh, beautiful. I love it. Definitely. How can we optimize? How can we set ourselves up for success, not just with our eating, but other lifestyle habits that support our well-being? I had a horrible week of sleep last week. And whenever that happens, I know to expect that the next day when I don't sleep well, things are going to seem really attractive. So you're driving down the road and you see a fast food restaurant or you see your favorite cake or whatever. It seems way more attractive and you feel like you have that lower threshold to make that decision when you're sleep deprived. So for people that are having a hard time with food and they just feel like they're giving into their cravings over and over and over again, and they're not liking how it feels or tuning in, they're being intuitive about it. They're not liking how it feels, but they just feel like they can't stop. 
look at these lifestyle habits too. Make sure you're sleeping. Make sure that you're getting your physical activity because they all support one another. It's so important. Just like you're talking about those hormones, they're affected by all these other things too. They're affected by sleep. They're affected by exercise. It's not just this black and white thing, you know? Absolutely. So for people who don't sleep enough or for, there's even studies on people who have to work the night shift and sleep during the day, that disruption in circadian rhythms actually affects our hunger and and satiety hormones. And you experienced that the other day when you were sleep deprived. Absolutely. Yep. Well, let's talk about, and you touched on this a little bit when you talked about maintenance, but once you see people and they're successful, they've been able to make the changes they want in their body. Can you tell us a little bit about how long that's usually sustainable for? I know that that's like a whole nother category, right? People get to where they want to be, but then it's trying to stay there and trying to maintain it in our lifestyle. And then what percent of people can maintain that weight loss for a prolonged period? If they can't, is this weight cycling, which we're very accustomed to in the United States, people are on and off diets all the time, is weight cycling worse for us than just trying to maintain maybe a higher weight with healthy lifestyle habits? Yeah, so I'll answer that part first. The yo-yo is bad. It's not only bad for our mental health and our psyche and our body image, but actually uh, an increased risk of cardiovascular issues down the line. Now, Does that mean that we shouldn't be trying to live all these healthy lifestyle practices and maybe the weight loss or gain is kind of a side effect of it? Absolutely not. Um, I think one of the reasons why people... So first of all, weight regain is unfortunately very common. And um, within two to three years, about half of the people regain weight. And within five to seven years, 80%. So it's very high. I will say that oftentimes people's goals about, I must lose 20% or 50 pounds and then maintain all of that, that is harder to do than to say, you know what, let me try to just achieve 5 to 7%, which is typically what people achieve with lifestyle changes alone. And 10, I would say closer to 15, sorry, 15 to 20% when they're using medication in addition to the lifestyle changes. So knowing that weight regain is real, it's not all personal responsibility, but very complex as we just talked about all those different changes. Our metabolism slows down to adapt. It's called metabolic adaptation after we lose weight. And, um, you know, they've actually done done a study on the people who participated in in that show, The Biggest Loser. And um, I think it was like 17 people. There was only one person that maintained the weight loss and that person had gastric bypass surgery, which actually even those people regained weight five to seven years after surgery. So we really have to have an ongoing discussion, meaning an ongoing follow-up. So if you're somebody that's like, you know what, I've worked to change my lifestyle. Maybe I used medication or not to get there. It's not one of those things that we can just say, oh, it's treated, it's done. You have to have an ongoing, just like how we talk about with other medical issues, is having that ongoing follow-up support, accountability, looking at the studies in terms of what characteristics um, people have of a ongoing maintenance 
plan that is effective in terms of being able to keep weight off is accountability and support. So having it be somewhere in your mind, it does not mean that you have to be constantly on a restricted diet. It doesn't mean that you have to be obsessed with it, but kind of like a, like in my practice, I see people every three to six months once they're in maintenance, they, they know they can reach out if they're struggling with something. So that's number one. Number two, using medications in the long term. And obviously this is different for everybody. And we always have to look at the pros and cons of any medical intervention. But for a lot of people, and I'll, I'll use for instance, my patients who have metabolically unhealthy obesity, say, meaning somebody who had type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea that was affecting their breathing, their quality of life, maybe was even contributing to high blood pressure. I've had patients like that. When they have been able to successfully adapt their lifestyle, change their habits, maintain a 15 to 20%, say, body fat reduction, for a person like that, maybe being on a medication that helps them to address all those other factors and they're still practicing the lifestyle, for that person, uh, avoiding the complications of diabetes, of obstructive sleep apnea, reducing their risk of cardiovascular disease, in that situation, in that maintenance plan, the medication is a tool that's serving them. So, you know, those are just some things to kind of think about in terms of maintenance. But movement and physical activity has been found to be very effective for weight maintenance. Obviously, that's only one reason why we should be doing it. Um, but that is one uh, side effect of that. And, you know, kind of keeping that um, ongoing mindfulness, I'm going to say, about what you do in your daily life, making sure you're getting sleep, working on stress management and coping strategies, and um, being mindful about that ultra-processed food <laughs> that is around us everywhere that has its way of sneaking in sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, we can't just completely, when we've made habit and behavior changes, we can't just completely check out and be like, okay, I'm done because right. slowly things go back to where <laughs> they were most comfortable, right? And yeah, so and that that's, makes and a that's lot of sense. human nature, <laughs> but uh, you don't have to vilify yourself or think, oh my gosh, I'm so imperfect. It's just a matter of, hey, you know what? I should probably pay more, a little bit more attention in that area. Yeah. Okay. So there are some people listening, probably they may not have listened this far because it could be triggering for them already, but say for people that have been on and off diets, they're, they're traumatized by the whole weight loss industry. They're traumatized by even attempting weight loss. Are there benefits to changing their diet and lifestyle? And if there are people that are like that, what would you recommend? What can they address to increase their well-being, maybe improve their health markers if they don't really want to focus on the weight at all? Absolutely. So yes, a resounding yes, there's benefits. So number one, you know, when we talked about cutting, I'm not saying cutting out completely because there's always times where indulgence is appropriate, but uh, cutting out or at least trying to get mindful and reducing uh, ultra-processed foods. So when we talk about ultra-processed, meaning like that is just not anywhere near what it appeared to be in nature. <laughs> so um, eating more real food, um, eating more plants, 
So eating more fiber, uh, getting lots and lots of what we call nutritionally dense food, right? So like eating more fruits and veggies and whole grains and lentils and beans. And even if you are incorporating meat into your lifestyle, maybe having it be a less featured spot on the plate, using it as flavoring, it's there, uh, but it's not the predominant kind of um, thing on your plate. Um, as far as nutritional changes, those are absolutely important in terms of your metabolic health and your well-being and your risk for all those conditions we talked about that um, oftentimes we're screening for in people. Uh, number two, movement. So I always like to call it movement too instead of like physical activity and exercise because that makes it really difficult sometimes because I struggle with meeting my exercise goals. I know it's hard. We have so many things going on in life. Um, so whatever movement you can get in your life has benefits to you outside of weight loss. So we're talking about um, standing when you could be sitting while you're working, uh, walk, taking little walks. So, you know, I tell people, take a 10-minute walk after you eat, eat your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner or, you know, twice a day, you just got 20 minutes. Uh, cardiovascular risk guidelines are trying to aim for 150 minutes a week. Well, if you took two 10-minute walks in five days a week, you've already hit 140 minutes. So incremental movement. Um, I will say that in terms of uh, risk and well-being, working on building muscle is nice because uh, that helps with uh, our insulin sensitivity. So, you know, I'm always thinking about diabetes risk. It um, helps raise our metabolism. We feel better. We move better. Um, you know, I'm starting to think about aging. <laughs> I'm in my 40s now and um, I want to be able to do stuff with my family and be able to get up from the ground and do stuff. So, you know, flexibility, um, so many different benefits to getting more movement in your life. The other two that I will say is, like we just talked about, getting your sleep I know I've been guilty of opting to watch one more Netflix episode. And, <laughs> and um, I, I don't feel good later and it, it does add up. And I think a lot of times people don't realize how much that sleep deprivation really leads to that burnout feeling and just not feeling good. And then last but not least, stress. Uh, we're, we can't take ourselves out of the environment that is modern day living, but we can definitely... I know it's hard. There's lots of different things that pull us in different directions, but getting out in nature, being with uh, loved ones, getting outside, you know, just taking breaks. And uh, even if it means turning off your phone and just, you know, doing a puzzle for five to 10 minutes, just something that work that works to bring stress reduction and makes you feel good. And uh, I th actually, the last one I'm going to say is I actually posted this one day on my Instagram and I loved it. It was do more things that make you, you, you know? So I think a lot of times we just like forget about ourselves or we, we come last. And, uh, you know, I just think it's important to kind of make sure that you're taking care of yourself and coming from a place of love. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love it. And it's true because especially when we talk about food, just like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, when we aren't seeking joy in other places in our lives, some of us have learned to seek joy exclusively from food. And I've been in that cycle before where the only thing I'm looking forward to in that day, because I'm forcing myself to do all these other things I don't really want to do is that treat at night, you know? So 
so important to embody what we want in life, seek out those pleasurable experiences with other humans by ourselves if we want to, whether it's creativity or just spending quality time with our family and friends, being out in nature, all of that contributes to our well-being and our health status, you know? So that's all super important. I love it. What do you wish more people knew? I feel like what I just said, <laughs> you know, I think that sometimes self-care becomes these like really intermittent vacations that we look forward to, which are not enough. You know, I can't live vacation to vacation. Um, or even, you know, when we kind of in that cycle of on the weekend is like a complete vacation from all health habits because we've worked ourselves, you know, <laughs> to the ground during the week. And so I think the one thing I want people to know is, you know, find little ways to bring joy and purpose and self-care to your life and whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be a spa. It could just be little things that like we've just talked about today uh, that you can do for yourself um, is really important. And, and I think maybe we don't value that enough in, in the role that it plays in our overall well-being. Uh, it's so well said. Thank you so much for that. Dr. Mithal, this has been such a great discussion. Thank you so much for indulging me in these questions and really exploring some of these issues with me. I definitely have to have you back because I have more questions I want to talk to you about. But before I leave the listeners with one final question, please tell us what products and services you offer and how my listeners can connect with you. Yeah, so I am in my medical practice is in the state of Texas. I see people throughout the state of Texas. And my practice website is www.radianthealthdallas.com. And I have a new website up that I'm now building more programs and courses and things like that. And that can be found at richamethylmd.com. I do have a blog on my practice website right now where I share monthly wellness tips and really about well-being. And we share weekly uh, healthy, just fun recipe inspiration as well. And um, I would welcome you to subscribe to that. And I think there's lots of useful information there that I, I love to share. And you can follow me on um, Instagram, Facebook at MD. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay, final question or actually request. Leave us with your favorite tip for busy moms to improve their health and well-being. So this is going to go along with what I just mentioned, but I challenge you to find just 10 minutes a day to make just about you. It doesn't matter what you do during that time, but something that brings you joy, something that's separate from your identity as a mom, a wife, an aunt, whatever other roles you play in your life, and just prioritize yourself for 10 minutes. And some ideas, like I mentioned, could be uh, to go outside, listen to a podcast, meditate, take a walk, call a friend, do something for yourself every day so you're not coming last. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Richa Mithil, for your time today. I appreciate you. Grateful that you are out there with your compassion and your loving heart helping other people. And I hope that you have a very fantastic day. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion. And thank you for all that you do. Wow, I really love that discussion and I love how I could just feel the compassion and care that Dr. Mithil has for her patients. How she's not out there doing this work to try to take advantage of people or to try to push some sort of agenda. She really is out there serving others 
to try to help them reach what they desire. So I know that this is a complex topic. There's so many emotions and feelings that come up for me when we have these discussions, but I want to keep having them. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to ask Dr. Mithil back again to talk about some other aspects of this topic. But I really appreciate you hanging in there with me. And I would love to hear your thoughts. What do you think about these discussions? What do you want me to ask some of these experts and practitioners? What are you curious about when it comes to navigating this world, the world of intuitive eating, health at every size, but also the world of health and well-being, and knowing that there are some people out there that they are still going to have the goal of weight loss. Can this be done in a health-promoting way that honors them and honors their mental health and helps them reach their goals for health and well-being? So these are the questions I wanna continue to explore. Thank you so much for hanging in there with me and I will catch you again next week. I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I wanna share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.